my name is Mia. And you're listening to the Bullpen Bulletin Podcast. X51 isn't here. He's all mad about something. Whatever. What's that weird music? Anyway, here's my daddy and David Price. Comic books are stupid. Yeah. Yeah, real dumb. They're made of poo. Okay out there in Marvelland, face front, this is Stan Lee speaking. Hey, who made you a disc jockey, lady? Well, well, Jolly Jack Kirby. By the way, Jack, the readers have been complaining about Sue's hairdo again. What am I supposed to do? Be a hairdresser? Next time I'll draw her bald-headed. Welcome to another episode of the Bullpen Bulletins Podcast, a celebration of all things Marvel. I'm Vince B. I'm David Price. And this episode, we have another new segment for you. It's called the Bullpen Bulletins Bargain Bin. Nice. Yeah, doesn't that roll right off the tongue? I I wish I knew ahead of time. I would have come prepared. Oh, shucks. (laughs) But before we get into that, I'd like to tack on a little addendum to our investigation of Joss Whedon and John Cassidy's Astonishing X-Men. That we you know, could, they're, they're, they're going to put a moratorium on Joss Whedon, uh, unless you realize. Oh, uh, they can't do that. Now, what I should have done before I read the 12-issue run was investigate Joss Whedon a little bit. Because like I said in the previous two episodes, I was never a big fan of the man. I wasn't very much exposed to his work. To be honest, I didn't really know all that much about him. So what I should have done was investigate his background a little bit, which I think would have lent a little bit more insight as to what exactly was going on in Dangerous in particular. My uh, search turned up a couple of neat facts about Mr. Weed, and it turns out that he is an atheist, which is, oh. which is really strange considering the amount of religious uh, symbolism and, and, and themes that, that trail through Dangerous. And he's also an absurdist and an existentialist, which is really neat. And in hindsight, now that I have the benefit of this information to uh, maybe push me in a certain direction, I think that... I'm what he's trying to say with dangerous is that mankind or humanity or whatever which way you want to say it has a tendency to compartmentalize and try and stuff things they don't understand into recognizable forms which in case of dangerous means that man can't really get a grasp on the divine so he tries to fashion it in his own image in in an effort to better understand it. So Professor X's subjugation of danger, keeping her under lock and key and limiting her function and making her succumb to his demands, 
in the manner of speaking, is a kind of way of expressing that where you have man who doesn't really understand the divine all that well, and he can't because by nature it's divine. He'll never be able to understand it because it's so far beyond the realm of what he is. I think that's kind of maybe what Whedon was trying to say with that arc, that we take things we don't understand and and try and fit the huge peg in the impossibly small hole which is our understanding and I, and I, and I don't think that turns out too well as you could see from that storyline where um, the divine can't be caged or subjugated and pretty much every religion on the planet has tried to apply a face to God in some way and it, I just think that kind of thinking backfires and maybe that's what good old Josh was trying to say with that arc I, I, I believe it's still up for interpretation there's a lot a lot of fuel in there to fire somebody's research so if you'd like to take a stab at it go right ahead and we'd be more than happy to hear it right David? Absolutely and, and if Mr. Whedon himself wants to uh, come on down and tell us what it is that uh, he, he exactly was trying to do, we'd, we'd be more than happy to uh, to hear it. Wouldn't that be sweet? Yeah, it would be. Grab him by the digital lapels and say, what in the hell were you doing with that arc? Tell me what you <laughs> meant. Which, of course, he'll say, whatever you're thinking is what I was trying to do. Right, because you know me. I never let anything go. Help me, David. I'll <laughs> <laughs> uh, take you to the clinic. Well, let's get back to this episode's topic. Uh, what David and I decided to do was rescue a bunch of books from the depths of the local comic store's bargain bins and talk about our findings in exasperating detail. That, that you've come to know and love. Yeah. Our local store sells books five for a buck. You I'm moving. Yeah, you can't beat that. And I'll tell you, there is no rhyme or reason to, to what you can find in there. You, you may find a nice little chunk of Captain America from the early 80s, maybe a Daredevil from the 90s. He currently has a huge run of New Mutants, maybe issues 1 to at least 100. No kidding? Yeah. What about um, all those Liefeld issues? Still got to be going for big bucks, right? No. No, they're in... <laughs> Oh, I get it. That was a joke. Are they are, they, are, are, are they are they CGC graded? Actually, I'm 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 on the lookout to replace some of my old Marvel uh, Marvel team ups. There is a really neat run of Marvel Tales in there. Oh, the uh, the reprints of Amazing. Yeah. Or oh, okay, cool, yeah. very cool, neat stuff. But being seasoned comic fans like we are, I don't think there's any thrill greater than rifling through a bargain bin, knowing that you're going to get. Maybe not so primo, maybe primo comics for a quarter, 20 cents a piece. Is there any better feeling than that? No. It's like Christmas. Every time I yeah. jump into a bargain bin, it's like the the, the thrill of, of just seeing cover after cover, and you, you don't know what's coming up, and maybe you strike gold, maybe you don't. Is, yeah. It's it's a great feeling and and absolutely every Wednesday our local comic shop will set up these tables and he just piles up the new books on the tables and there's always guys milling around. I head straight for the bargain bins. He's got about six or seven long boxes in the back of the store, just loaded with books. He'll refill them every week, maybe with twenty, a hundred books, you know, and you never know what you're going to get. So I'm going through those books while the the guys are picking up their new stuff and then eventually I get around to the new stuff but I, I do love my bargains and I think the key 
to bargain bin hunting is, in my opinion, to look for the annuals and the one-shots first. Because, as a rule, annuals aren't that hot, and I don't usually spring for the annuals. Well, in the past. Marvel has taken great steps recently to improve the quality of their annuals. But there was a stretch in the 90s where annuals were like the yeah. books the books to avoid. Yeah, but that, that also in, in the 90s, the annuals were the big crossover events. It, it, it scares me, some of the some of the crossover. I mean, you had, um, when the adjectiveless X-Men started up, there was a, a Shattershot, I think, crossover going in through all the, the mutant annuals. And I think maybe you got 14 or maybe a full regular monthly length comic, maybe 22 pages of the main story in the annual. And there were some backup stories. And or with that main storyline, I think the backup stories were, were the better deal. Spidey had them. I believe the the main Marvel heroes, like like the the Avengers and, and the Fantastic Four, might have might have had some storylines meshing. Or the Avengers, it would be in the Avengers, and then Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, and and, and etc. So they, yeah, during the '90s, aside from the art not being that great, they also had these so-called mega events that you were just better off sticking with the monthly tales. Sad that you should mention that because one of the books I selected for this week is an annual, and it does start in The Punisher, continues into Daredevil, goes through The Incredible Hulk, and then it finishes in The Silver Surfer. Talk about a mismatched bunch of books. It was kind of like a Defenders with, with, with The Punisher thrown in. and, and then there, Actually, it started sounds like it started off with some grim and gritty street-level heroes with Punisher and DD. Exactly. See, there's a reason... And Okay. Yeah, there's, it's pretty cool, and, and you'll see why very soon. We posted a thread on the forum where we asked our listeners to tell us about their greatest bargain bin findings, and I made an error in judgment and also tacked on flea markets on there. And when you really think about it, there's a whole hell of a lot of difference between bargains at a flea market and what you can find in a in a cheapy bin. Because yeah. You the, can score something really nice at a flea market. Right. That's the whole thing. The owner of the comic shop knows he he's not going to put his top dollar books in the in the bargain bins. Those are right. middle of the road and a lot of roads less traveled in the in the bargain bin. But at a flea market, you can score some mega deals. And I have yeah. I have a million stories. I'm sure we all do about you know striking gold at a flea market. W- one time, I stumbled upon this guy with a huge. I don't want to say duffel bag because it, it looked like the bag they stored the parachute in in your gym class. Remember that huge bag? <laughs> now, and this thing was loaded with comics, just top to bottom. It must have weighed about at least 200 pounds. And wow. I came up to the guy. I said, how much are the comics? He said, ah, a quarter a piece. So I, I opened up the bag, started rifling through them, and I picked out an Uncanny X-Men 97. Wow. And on the spot, I said, how much do you want for that whole bag? <laughs> Grand total, 20 bucks. No shit. Yep. Took them home. Oh. Started going through them. I mean, there was a lot of, I don't want to say crap, but there was a lot of less than desirable books in there. You had your sure. Marvel Tales, because I already had the originals. You had your Marvel Collector's Items Classics. You know, a lot of the reprint books were in there. And then you had a lot of sure. the, the Charlton Horror books, which I love. So I considered those a score right there. But Giant Size X-Men, 
Oh. Yep. And maybe Uncanny 95 to maybe 115. Now, these, I'm guessing the guy bought them around the time he had to sell, sell them at the flea market because books like that are not going to stick around long. So they, sure. they weren't really banged up, but these, um, these weren't mint copies. They were red. Um, yes and no. They were, they were maybe mid-level fine. Okay. Toward, towards the bottom, maybe a fine, but there was there was no coverless books in there, no crap. They were all in decent shape, so that that was like I, I don't have anything that can compare to that. The, there was Amazing Spider Man. Oh, oh, another one, Incredible Hulk one eighty one. No way. I, I kid you not. That that what was, was this Wolverine bag. Th- that was my all time my all time best score. I I don't know. He must have just maybe at a at an uh, uh, an auction or a. An estate sale. He just bought a bunch of books, threw them in a bag, and brought them to the flea. I have no idea, but I'm glad that guy did what he did because I got a lot of really good books. Hell yeah! The only time I think I really, well, I mean, really, it's it's most recent memory. You know, we keep talking about it, but it, it was Wizard World Chicago. I mean, you were there. You saw what I was leaving with. Oh yeah. You saw what I, I mean. One of my favorites is the uh, the Incredible Hulk hardcover volume one for fifteen bucks. I recently read that, and 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 that was real nice. It, it's it's really my first oversized hardcover edition from Marvel of, of any kind. So this is what I have to look forward to with omnibuses and 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 future hardcovers. Then uh, I'll be happy. But I mean, uh, other things like like what Dan's going to forever be cursing me out over uh, Desolation Jones one through six for a buck a piece. Sweet. Um, I left with uh, trying to fill up my the holes that I've I've had over the years of. Uh, of my icon and hardware comics from, from the milestone imprint from the, from the guys down the street. I mean, those were all inexpensive. I picked up some Grendels that were, that were less than a buck and, and all the, all the trades I bought were all, all half price. I, I, with the exception of a couple of items, I think that I bought at the artist's table so they could sign it like fear agent, like NYC 24 seven, like those were regular price because I was buying them from the creator. So, so he, he could autograph it. But other than that, I, I, I don't think I paid full price for hardly anything that weekend. Hey, Sean, Jim, just wanted to say that you guys are doing a bang-up job. I, I love focusing on one company and seeing everything that they have coming out. And You guys do the best reviews of DC stuff. Uh, I think it's a fantastic cast. and I, I, I heard that a couple other guys have ripped off your idea, and they're they're doing something for Marvel now. And well, you know, it was bound to happen. I, I wouldn't get too upset. I've listened to some of it. It's all right. They they may hang around for a little while, but I mean, in between you and me, these guys are kind of hacks. And you know, it's you know, we'll we'll see. We'll see. I, I wouldn't be too worried about it. So anyway, keep up the great work. Don't worry about the competition down the street. We all know. So all right, I'll talk to you later. Bye. So let's get our hands dirty here. I rescued. Four books from the bargain bin of varying quality. One was fantastic. Two were very good, and one was utter crap. And you'll see why. Oh. Yeah, I rescued Guardians of the Galaxy number one from 1990. Okay. Quasar number 11. Ooh. X51 number five from hey. the yeah from the old Marvel Tech series. 
and The Incredible Hulk Annual Number 16. Oh, wow. So what'd you pick? I had some fun. I figured I'd... I went a little different. I, I picked up Ghost Rider Number 4 from the 1990 series, so this is Volume 2. I remember reading a lot of the early Ghost Rider issues with Danny Ketch, so I figured let me go back to something like that. X-Force Number 76, which... I never read and uh, didn't really stick with X-Force after the first year or so, so I wanted to know how the team changed. Daredevil, Volume 2, Number 41, or thanks to Marvel's numbering, also known as Volume 1, Number 421. This is my only Brian Michael Bendis, Alex Maleev, Daredevil. I'm reading the Brewbreaker run now, and I read the Kevin Smith run, so I never read anything from, from Bendis as far as Daredevil goes. And Avengers... Number 78, or this is Volume 378, also known as Volume 1493. This is, uh, this is only a couple years old. This is from 2004. This is a Chuck Austin-written Avengers. And I, the only thing I really ever read from Austin was a uh, JLA arc, which wasn't the greatest, but I figured let, let me just take a stab at his, at his Marvel stuff and see you know, if he really was the devil incarnate when it came to, to writing Marvel comics. So those are my four. Cool. Some great picks in there. I think so. Well, let's get it rolling. I'll start off with the one I enjoyed the most, and that would be Guardians of the Galaxy, first issue from 1990. Now, I have always been a huge fan of the Guardians, which stands to reason because most of the, their adventures were written by Steve Gerber. So it boggles my mind why I never bought this series when it originally came out. For whatever reason, I, I I couldn't I couldn't even tell you why, but I passed on it. So when I saw this in the bargain bin, I jumped at the chance to get this. Like I said, this came out in 1990, and if you do the math, the Guardians were created by Arnold Drake and the amazing Gene Colan in 1969. In Marvel, wow. yeah, Marvel Superheroes number 18 was the first appearance of the Guardians. So this book came out 21 years after their first appearance. Now you would think, holy crap, there, there must be a lot of history behind them. But there's not, because their appearances were intermittent. They never had a title of their own until this book came along. Right. And in in the grand scheme of things, they only appeared in a, a handful of issues. I'd, I'd be surprised if anybody can actually name three members of the team. And, and that's pretty sad. We're the same... Since they were created in 69, was the same team in 1969, the same team in this 1990s run you're reading? Yes, with a couple of additions. Okay. Yeah. Gerber took what Drake and Colin created and inserted them into Marvel 2 and 1 in 1974. The Guardians appeared in issue 4 and 5, where the Thing and Captain America meet the Guardians, and then he just ran with it. He he had the, the team appear in his run of Defenders in the Giant Size number 5 from 1975, and then in issues 26 to 29 of the same year. And then Gerber wrote half of the Guardians run that appeared in Marvel Presents. He wrote issues 3 to 7, Roger Stern wrote 8 to 12. Then the Guardians popped up in the Thor annual number 6, that Korvac saga. But, okay, right. Yeah, but that's not a Gerber uh, product. That was written by Len Wein and Roger Stern. So that's that's it. There's not a whole lot of appearances from this team. But what appearances they did make, the history of this group is kind of convoluted. 
I mean, if you don't know the backdrop, you're lost. You you can't just you know, pick up the Guardians and, and, and start, you know, enjoying their adventures without knowing where they came from and what the situation is. And that's where Valentino really excelled in this issue. He recounts every scrap of Guardians history in about seven pages. And I'll tell you, if this book were written today, it would take about four issues to get all the information in that he he inserted into this first issue. It is amazing. Nice. Yeah. It's a nonstop roller coaster ride, really text heavy. But for anybody who who's not aware, this is Valentino who Jim Valentino uh wrote and draw this sucker and Steve Montano inked it. And we all know Jim Valentino from one of the image founders and his uh creation Shadowhawk. But yeah. this is as far removed as that as you're going to get. For the uninitiated, the Guardians of the Galaxy takes place in the 31st century. And as you may expect, it's not the 616 universe. It's an alternate universe, the Earth 691. Yeah, it's kind of neat. It's it's geeky, but hey, that's what we're about. That's right. So the backdrop of the Guardians, this is the 31st century. Mankind has been pretty much put through the ringer. There was a skin cancer epidemic due to a massive depletion of a of the ozone layer. So that knocked the population down a little bit. There was a war with Mars, um, a civil war in which what little remained of the inhabitants of the planet were divided into these barbaric city-states ruled by the techno-barons. And, you know, so mankind's in trouble here. And after the death of one of these techno-barons in 2525, they formed this World Federation, and that ushered in a new era of prosperity. So naturally, everybody's happy. People start experimenting. You know, the science has exploded, and they started tinkering with genetic engineering, which led to a colonization of pretty much every planet in our solar system. They jumped to Mercury, where they found this ore that can make faster-than-light travel possible figure that out <laughs> yeah and once that happened they just spread throughout our solar system and beyond so they colonized jupiter and pluto and you know humanities everywhere all from earth you know they populated the the the, the solar system but wouldn't you know in comes the brotherhood of the Badoon in 3006 and everything goes to hell they attacked all the colonies on all the planets destroyed them they enslave the Earth, and that's where the story starts. Okay. Yeah. And most of the members of the Guardians are the last survivors from their particular colony. So they're all unique, pretty much. And they have a major grudge against the Badoon because, you know, you wipe out your people. That's not going to sit too well, you know? No, definitely not. Yeah. So there's Charlie 27. He's the last survivor of the Jupiter colony. And because of the increased gravity... On Jupiter, this guy has superhuman strength, incredibly powerful. He's the team pilot and the military strategist. Then you got Nikki. Uh, if you've seen, you know, illustrations of the team, she's the chick with the fire hair. Right. Yeah. Gerber created her. Uh, she appeared in Marvel Presents number four for the first time. She's the sole survivor of the Mercury colony. Her deal is, you know, she's an expert marksman and also acts as the team navigator and technical weapons expert. Okay. Right. Next, we have Martinex. 
He's the silicon-based guy, the guy that looks like a big diamond. Right, right, right. He's from the Pluto colony, and he also acts as the team scientist, can emit blasts of heat from one hand and cold from the other. Okay. Yeah, they have a pretty well-rounded um, roster. And Yandu, he's my favorite. He's the last son of Earth's colony on Centauri Four. The the guy with the blue skin and the the big red fin on his head. Yep. Yeah, yep. and his he's an archer. Yeah, yeah. He's okay. got those those Yaka arrows. He'll he'll fire an arrow at a target and whistle, and the arrow will, will obey his his uh, sonic commands and stuff. It's oh, really okay. really cool. But he's um, the team mystic and another weapons master. Then we have Major Vance Astro, who has a pretty convoluted origin. He was an Earthman from the 20th century, sent out to explore the boundaries of the solar system. And while he was doing that, humanity found the ore on Mercury. So they got to where Vance was going first. He's been traveling for a thousand years, popping in and out of suspended animation along the way. And while he's doing it, he's recounting all of the adventures of Earth's superheroes, Captain America, Fantastic Four, just to keep himself busy on these little, these little data chips. So while he's doing that, he's creating this whole mythos about the Earth's heroes that because all the people are slowly being subjugated by the Badoon, they're looking to Earth's heroes of the 20th century as these these leaders and these cult figures and these these saviors, basically. So they 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 gain this legendary status while he's in transit. So he gets finally to gets to his destination, and he finds out that the Earth people are already there. The effects of time are starting to take their toll on him so that's why he wears that protective suit the black okay, the right, black right, and white right. yeah that's to basically keep him alive because if he wasn't wearing it he'd probably just crumble wasn't he wasn't he marvel boy no 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 um marvel boy oh wait, wait, wait. vance astrovic right wasn't that like his, his full name or and i remember he was in the wrestling federation that ben grimm was in i believe it was after ben grimm came back from traveling the Beyonders planet, when he had the ability, it, it was after he had the ability to go from to transform from Ben Grimm to the Thing, if need be. Right. Um, but he came back to Earth. I believe She-Hulk was still a member of the Fantastic Four, so he was basically um, mostly only in his um, in his main series. But he he was in the Wrestling Federation, and I know Vance Astro was in it, or if not in it full time, he made an appearance because I remember there was an I remember the cover really well. And it was Vance and the Thing wrestling each other, and in the foreground. Um, well, I just said I remember it really well, but it, obviously I'm lying because I believe in the foreground there was there was a, a hand holding a gun, and so like I said, so yeah, apologies for the for the sidetracking. I, I just I remember seeing Vance Astro in other places other than in Guardians of the Galaxy. See that the Thing series is a big blur to me. The only, oh, okay. The only thing I remember from that is Rocky Grimm Space Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was after that, that was during the whole him um kind of sightseeing around uh the battle world or wherever the beyond brought everybody. Right. After the first Secret War, that's where cuz after after Secret War and all the heroes went back and he decided to stay on the planet, then we got Rocky Grimm Space Ranger. Interesting. I remember who uh, Marvel Boy was. It was Robert Grayson. So it wasn't okay. All right. So the, the, and, the, does Vance 
have any sort of origin other than being with the guard. I mean, aside from what you just mentioned, uh, the whole thing about the time, but was he anybody else other than Vance Astro before the Guardians of the Galaxy? I don't think so. I think he was a okay. pilot. Okay. Yeah. And another Gerber creation, Starhawk. And Starhawk is pretty cool because he's got this Captain Marvel Rick Jones thing going on. Uh, he shares his body with his half-sister, Alita. They can only come to the forefront, each person, for a certain amount of time, and the other one has to go into this limbo-type state, and the other one takes the forefront. So it's a lot like Captain Marvel and, and Rick Jones. And he right, okay. he's kind of the team pain in the ass. He complains a lot, and he thinks he's better than the rest of them. And, and he sure. he has that tagline of the one who knows, you know? So, yeah, he's a big prima donna but (laughs) (laughs) but uh uh, valentino grabs you by the throat and throws you right in the thick of action from page one really yeah it's it's awesome the the guardians um travel to the planet korg in search of captain america's shield how cool is that that is i like that okay and uh if you like exiles type what if Marvel Universe geekery stories, then you'll love the Guardians because it's basically exiles without, you know, the uh, the time hopping. The, okay. They'll throw little pieces of bric-a-brac and characters from the Marvel Universe into the 31st century and, you know, it's 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 a, a it gives a big old bear hug to Marvel fandom. So, That's neat. yeah, okay. it's a it's a cool little book. So but it's right up our alley. Oh, you're not kidding. They're looking for Captain America's shield. And while they're on this planet, the defenses spring into life. And they're they're being bombarded by this huge laser battery. So, naturally, they knock the, the crap out of the laser battery. But as they do, I guess there was a fail-safe trigger on there where, as it's destroyed, it sends this little message to this orbiting spaceship. That doesn't sit too well with someone called Taserface. Oh, neat. Yeah. Now, in, in in Valentino's defense, his son created this character when he was five. Oh, okay, because I thought maybe Stan Lee co-plotted. No. <laughs> so Taserface is all ticked off that somebody's trespassing on his property, goes down to the planet, and naturally starts messing it up with the Guardians. And they notice that his armor looks strangely familiar. He's He's got this red and gold type suit with... Um, this massive gun for an arm and literally the guy shoots electromagnetic energy from his face hence his name taser face okay. it, it, reveling in absurdity it's just a fun book the guardians kick the shit out of taser face and again when he goes down it sends a, a distress signal to another orbiting ship which leads to the last page and we end on a cliffhanger naturally this huge battalion of armored warriors barge into the into the scene and they are called the stark oh. yeah so i guess they were a primitive race who somehow stumbled upon stark produced technology and that jump started their evolution and they're they've based this whole culture and their 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 barbaric natures on this armor so and that's where we're left off <laughs> oh, that's neat. Yeah, and 
And every page, it's really evident how much fun Valentino is having with these characters. There's almost this giddy excitement evident that he's, he's having the time of his life with a team that he appreciates. And he just wants to tell good, fun science fiction stories. And that's all I can say about the book. The book is a hell of a lot of fun. You, you you get an appearance by the Fantastic Four of sorts, oh, Warlock, uh, Captain America, Spider Man. It's just it the Avengers. They they recount all the uh, the past adventures of the Guardians. So the Korvac saga is in here, and a little bit of snippet of that. And there, it took me literally forty minutes to read the book because there's so much text in here. Made me wonder why I skipped it because now. As you'll have when you pick books out of bargain bins, you you run the risk of, you know, getting yourself in the hole for another couple hundred dollars because you find something you love. <laughs> and I'll tell you, uh, I'm on a quest to pick up this entire series. And and God forbid you you come across a series that you you can pick up in its entirety in the five for a dollar box, except for one issue, which is the first appearance of some character that went on to bigger and better things right. that ends up costing more than the entire series combined. Mm-hmm. Now getting getting back to um to Valentino before I figure, just to go off on a side note, the um the way you were describing him and, and how much fun you think he was having with this um with this series. I believe he was the the elder statesman. He was the oldest of the seven that went to form Image from leaving Marvel. I think out of ever, out of the remaining six men that went on to, to form Image, I'm wondering if, if, if based on, on his experience in the industry, on his work ethic, on his age, I, I have a feeling that his comics were fun to read as opposed to those by, by Jim Lee, by Todd McFarlane, because Spider-Man... You could say Liefeld. I could say Liefeld. You could say Liefeld. Uh, and, and, but see, because um, Valentino wrote Andrew Guardians, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, McFarlane wrote the adjectiveless Spider-Man, and we all talk about five for a dollar books. And Lee might have co-plotted X-Men with, with Claremont, but you know, the X-Men wasn't a really bright and cheerful comic book. Spider-Man, written by, done by McFarlane, wasn't a bright and cheerful comic book. I have a feeling that, that Valentino was actually having fun working at Marvel. And I, I truly am wondering... He, he seemed the most out of place of the seven to go to Image. Just because he... The other guys wanted to make a statement. They were young. They were brash. You're like, you know, we're down, down with the man. We want to do our own thing. And I, I could... I understand that. And I, I applaud him for taking the chance on it. And it, it definitely worked out for him. But, but Valentino just seemed like the, the odd man out in that group. Right, and, then and maybe I agree with you, especially in terms of his style of rendering. There's none of that excessive line work that you saw with, say, McFarlane, and to a lesser extent, Jim Lee, and to a greater extent, Rob Liefeld. He he has an economy of line that he draws just enough to convey convey the scene. And what's going on in the panel? There, there's none of that little fancy smancy, you know, rendering everything in sight and and stylistic touches that McFarlane had. This is your basic comic book rendering, no no frills, 
And I think that's where it gets its charm. It's a Bronze Age book masquerading as a book from the 90s. It reads like a Bronze Age book. There, okay. There's so much information in here. Like I said, it would take three, four issues to do this today. There's like nine, ten panels per page. It's fast. The action is bombastic. There's a lot of just joy in telling this story. And I don't think the other image guys had that. Maybe that's because of the experience. I mean, because Valentino had normal man. I was surprised when he went to Marvel because I remember him being heavy in the independent scene when I was reading comics in the 80s and I was reading Amazing Heroes or Comics Journal and and, and, and those types of magazines. And, and I was not as surprised I wasn't maybe shocked that he was at Marvel but it I had to do a double take when I noticed that a comic was being done at Marvel by Jim Valentino but and 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 it sounds like it kind of it like it kind of bridged a gap a little bit between that Bronze Age and the that 90s style image era that we're used to seeing so much nowadays it's definitely the missing link and he writes a extensive history on the team for a text page that appears in, at the end of the issue. Little teeny itsy bitsy type loaded with, <laughs> I mean, it is small type, loaded with detail and just lays it all out for you, gets you up to speed. I mean, he does it inside the issue too. You can tell he's having fun with this. And get this, on one of the bullpen bulletins pages, Ooh. this is a little tie-in to current events. Uh, item. Let us all bid a fond farewell to daring Dwayne McDuffie, who is leaving his editorial position at Marvel to enter the wacky world of freelance writing. Dwayne is already hard at work on the third Damage Control limited series and has several other projects in the works involving Deathlock, Captain Marvel, and Hawkeye. So even though we won't be seeing Dwayne on a day-to-day basis anymore, he's still working for us just as much as ever. We wish Dwayne much luck and success in his freelance career. Replacing Dwayne as Bob Budiansky's assistant on special project is Titanic Tom Brevert. Hey. Who just started out as Marcus McLaurin's assistant a few short months ago. Dwayne McDuffie (laughs) is scheduled to be the next writer on Fantastic Four. And you can't talk Marvel without talking Tom Brevert. Not nowadays, yeah. So, and that's a, another thing about these old issues, just diving into the old bullpens page and seeing all the old convention ads and ads for Nintendo games. It's just, you, I don't think you can have, legally, this much fun for a quarter. <laughs> Probably not. And like I said, I'm hooked. I'm on a, a quest to acquire every issue of Valentino's Guardian of the Galaxies. And I, I, and I don't think he lasted all that long on this because I have a, a couple later issues, say 32 and 40-something, and he didn't do them. So it, I have to do a little bit of research and see how long he, he lasted on this title. Okay. I might have to be on the lookout for him as well. Looks like we're going to have a fight, big boy. Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> I hope you get him all before Chicago next year. Hey guys, this is Chris. Just wanted to drop a line and let you know how much I've been enjoying what you've been doing. I actually left a message for Sean and Jim over at Raging Bullets singing your praises. And just the, the mountain of knowledge that you guys possess. It's, uh, through episodes 
one, two, three, B, C, D, F, and G, it never occurred to me that someone could sit for four hours and talk about Joss Whedon that way and, and just how interesting that that was. Um, anyway, um, keep up the good work, and uh, I'll be talking to you guys soon. And uh, we'll catch you on the next episode of Bullpen Bullet Bulletins. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, later. So, uh, what's your first book? Uh, I'll bring my first book to light. It'll be Ghost Rider number four. Again, from the 1990 Danny Ketch starring Ghost Rider series, volume two. The writer is Howard Mackey, who we tend to know from, from Spider-Man. Breakdowns were done by uh, Javier Salteras and finishes were done by uh, Mark Texiera and uh, pretty topical I mean talking about everything else and it's the same art team that's doing the current Ghost Rider series this was this was a pretty fun issue it it, it was Ghost Rider versus Mr. Hyde or at least Ghost Rider versus Mr. Hyde for a page or two this is different than the next comic book I'll talk about in the sense that I seemed I got a lot from this one issue. The opening and closing pages had to do with with a different plot than what was going on in, in during the meat of the book. But I got a lot out of it as far as you know where the characters were in 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 their heads and and what they wanted to do. I mean, we um, Danny Ketch has has never in the early issues he didn't after he became Ghost Rider, I believe in the first issue and and Ghost Rider's Spirit of Vengeance, and that's the whole purpose of being, and I believe he took care of what he needed to take care of in the first issue or two, and now as time's going, time is going on, he wants to get rid of this, I guess he could consider it a curse, and uh, he decides to go and put the bike into storage, so this way nobody can has to bother with it, and, and, and if it's away from him, chances are he won't have to worry about Ghost Rider, and he can concentrate on what he needs to concentrate on. While he's contemplating all this, Dr. Calvin Zabo is at a bar and pretty much manhandling a barmaid, and she calls the bouncer. Bouncer throws Zabo out, and Zabo comes back and hits the bouncer over the head with a bottle and then runs away. So he's running away. The bouncer and his gang of friends happens to be a biker gang. They're chasing him. Danny catches bringing the bike to Manhattan to store it in a garage. Zabo goes and hides in that garage and then the biker gang shows up because that's the last place they have to look for Zabo. And we find out that Dr. Calvin Zabo, who is the alter ego of, of Mr. Hyde, he's had some bad luck recently uh, thanks to some footnotes in the comic which are sorely missing these days. He's had a bit of bad luck in the pages of Captain America and the Incredible Hulk. And I guess there's a head injury or is experiences some severe pain when bringing forth the transformation to Hyde. And he finally does become Hyde. He goes to take care of the biker gang. Danny Ketch, he knows bad is happening, so now he needs the bike again. He turns into Ghost Rider. I'm not spoiling anything for anybody. I, I'm trying to leave out some details here and there. So basically, he turns into Ghost Rider. He and Hyde fight. And at the end, they both run away from each other to fight another day. And um, like I said, with the exception of the opening page and the last page, it's almost like it's a done-in-one story. There's, there's, there's enough of a 
you, you get a glimpse of Danny Ketch's life to know that something else is going on that you can keep reading about. Uh, but if you know, if you just wanted to get a Mr. Hyde fight with Ghost Rider, then then this is your book. The other ongoing plot line has to do with, for some reason, babies are being kidnapped. They're just they turn up missing, and uh, it's touched upon in the first page in the first couple of pages and in the last page we see a woman walking down the street and uh, and her baby gets kidnapped taken by uh, two shadowy figures and then i guess as was uh, as was common back in the 90s uh, the last panel says next issue uh and you have the little punisher logo down there which i i wouldn't mind uh, reading ghost rider number five to find out about the meeting between ghost rider and the punisher that that, that sounds like it'd be pretty neat but uh i don't think we got as much out of Ghost Rider number four is one gets out of Guardians of the Galaxy number one. But, you know, I mean, as a back issue bargain deal, you, I don't think you can really beat it. I, I enjoyed the issue. I, I enjoyed it a lot. I remember Mr. Hyde looking really maniacal in that issue, massively proportioned with the hair all over and the, the, the one wide staring eye and the grimace. And Salteras did a really good job on him. He did. I I wish I knew where Salteras' breakdowns end and Texas finishes begin. Because even though this book is over 10 years old, you can tell Tex had a hand in it. I mean, you can always spot Mark Texera art a mile away. Absolutely. Um, the brushstroke he uses when he's inking is just... I mean, and you have it... Um, just like George Perez has the the shot in every comic where you're looking up and you can see up someone's nostril. And everybody... All the artists have that that just that, that trademark image in all their comic, and and uh, when when Tex draws a, a face, and it's just straight on, like the, if it was a, a a film, they'd be looking in the camera. I mean, so when you're when the person in the panel is looking right at the reader, and they're saying, I mean, doesn't matter what they're saying, that that face is always you know the jaw, the mouth, the the eyes, the way they light up. I mean, it's it's just it's. It's a text face, and I could just stare at those panels for days. I mean, I, I was reading, I actually read Ghost Rider number three this morning, and it's there again. I mean, it, 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 it's there this time with, uh, although it's mostly Doctor Strange we see making that face. It, it's text, man. I just, I, even if this book was not as good as I think it is, and text still did the art, it's still got a thumbs up for me. Tex is very good at chiseled features. Yeah, he's very good at drawing the larger-than-life characters. Was he a fan of Neil Adams? Because I, I tend to see a lot of Neil Adams in his work. I can definitely see some Neil Adams, especially in the poses somewhat of the characters, but the way the bodies are posed when they're throwing a punch or they're running or and any any sign, of, almost any sign of action, it's it's almost, some could say it's it's very Adam-esque. He's a real strange case with me because I, I can't really peg the guy because on the one hand, he's a realist. He doesn't really do a lot of exaggeration in his physical forms and stuff, but his line is really expressionistic. So it's like he's got this am I, am I not thing going on. It's beautiful to look at. I'll, get, I'll give you that. Oh, and, and it's funny. When you say realist, it's like, and, and again, Going back to the latest issue of Ghost Rider, he he goes and he'll he'll throw the chain to go get Doctor Strange, and Ghost Rider, even though someone like this can't exist, I'm wondering if if a model was actually used because it's very realistic in the way that 
the character is rendered on the page. Right. But he, he's doing the action is so unrealistic, and it's just it, it really it, it's it's a nice meshing of of the the believable and 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 the not. Right. And look at the line. There's there's a lot of personality in his line. He likes to vary line weights a lot, and there's a lot of excitement in it. And it's not it's not a clean line. You could almost say that Tex has a gritty style, which is perfect for the things that he's put on, like yes. go, like Ghost Rider. That fits perfectly. I have a one shot called Spider Man. I believe it's Legacy of Evil, and it's yes. a uh, it's a it's a Green Goblin story, and. I could never imagine Tex doing a Spider-Man story, but I, I wasn't even looking at it because it was a Spidey story. It was, and even even when even when characters aren't in costume, it's it's a great looking comic book. Yeah, and the cover's incredible. The cover's really neat. Yep, the cover's almost Ditko-esque with Spider-Man on the cover, way he's swinging towards you, and and Green Goblin's in the background. I don't know too many Ditko images of of him. Putting a, char- a, a larger size character head behind the other character, but I mean the Spider-Man pose itself reminds me of Ditko. Texas Black Panther was amazing. Oh, it was great. Yeah, it was really great. I love those early issues. So Ghost Rider number four recommended. If you're looking for something to read, it's it's a fun little. It's not a 40 minute read, but if you're looking for something to just read real quick. I, I, I don't think you can go wrong. <laughs> Most of that 40 minutes was just absorbing the detail. <laughs> <laughs> My second choice was Quasar number 11. Now, there's a, a really neat bit of conceptual continuity going on here. Starhawk, who I mentioned before from the Guardians, is the son of Quasar and Kismet, who, oh. who used to be known as Paragon who also was known as her. She's a life form that was created in the same mold as Adam Warlock, who was called him, so she's called her. Get it? Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. Those, those real creative Marvel writers. <laughs> <laughs> but this issue was written by the late, great Mark Gruenwald, and it was drawn by Mike Manley and inked by Fred Fredericks. If you're not familiar with the, the history of Quasar, it's pretty simple. He was a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent who was charged with guarding this research facility, and it was attacked by AIM, Advanced Idea Mechanics, and they tried to get their hands on these quantum bands so as not to have them fall into the, the hands of this devious organization. He donned the quantum bands and became Quasar. Kind of sounds like a certain... Ant-Man character from from what we're uh, getting right now. Yeah. As far as being a shield agent and grabbing something else that was uh, that was in the lab that uh in order to to help out those that needed to be helped out. Yeah, I think uh Wendell Vaughn's intentions are going to be a lot more altruistic than uh <laughs> <laughs> w- w- what's going on in Ant-Man. But I'm sure. The Quantum Bands were originally the possession of Marvel Boy, who we mentioned before, Robert Grayson. And uh, once Quasar picks up the mantle, um, he is bequeathed the title of Protector of the Universe by Eon, another one of those cosmic entities, much in the same mold as the Kree Supreme Intelligence, a big old disgusting floating head with the tentacles and the <laughs> yes. you know. And uh, after Captain Marvel died, the position was open, 
So Quasar is the protector of the universe, you know, and he later joined the Avengers and the quantum bands allow him to tap into and manipulate this energy from the quantum zone. Basically, like Green Lantern, whatever he thinks, he can create these energy constructs, you know, uh, a big pair of scissors, and it's it's much in the same vein as the the, the, the lantern ring. So Quasar's in pursuit of these aquatic aliens, and he's, he's traveling over the, the ocean, and this force streaks across the surface of the water and kicks this huge tidal wave up and quasar is is tossed about like a piece of cloth in a dryer and and marty's going to be the only one who gets that but that's okay <laughs> so he pursues this entity and gets up close to him and he and he creates this parachute which creates drag, and the character goes down, and he eventually finds out that it's Makari of the Eternals. Scene changes, and we go to the lighthouse base of Excalibur. Another one of Ooh. my yeah, another one of my favorite teams. And this story occurs right after the Cross Time Caper, that awesome multi-issue romp that Alan Davis, for the most part, drew so well. Right. You you're familiar with Alan Davis, aren't you? I, I have heard of him. I think yeah. he's he's from England, right? He's not bad. I'm gonna hurt you. And while Ex- <laughs> <laughs> so while Excalibur is resting after this huge ordeal, this ghostly pair of eyes manifests in the lighthouse, and it scans each one of the team, each member of the team, and eventually settles on Rachel as being the most powerful. Like, duh. So he <laughs> he possesses Rachel. And forces her to rip a hole in reality, basically, allowing none other than Mordred the Mystic to come through. Remember Mordred? Yes, I do. Mr. Fancy Pants with, with the long hair and the, the, yeah. the, the purple tights. Well, he, I guess Styling. he was banished by Merlin in Captain America 306. So he's got a major mad on for Merlin, and he's going to use Rachel to help him out but while this is going on eon who quasar keeps in a pocket dimension behind his bookcase in his office is that, is that the coolest <laughs> thing you've ever heard That's great. The, the bookcase slides a, a, across and you got this this star field and there's eon floating in this 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 goofy dimension so uh eon says yo quasar we better get a handle on this because i think this is a threat to the universe so quasar enters the scene Basically, with the help of Widget, Modred is popped off into another dimension. Nightcrawler grabs him and teleports him within reach of Widget, who then uses that gateway tool that he has and throws Modred into another dimension. And that's the end of the story. But while I was reading this, I was struck by how much effort Gruenwald put into the scientific aspects of what was going on. Quasar will mention tachyons and how they reside outside the electromagnetic spectrum. He talks about Makari reaching escape velocity. And and as he's pursuing him, he tells himself to compensate for the curvature of the Earth. Now, compare this with the goofy stuff going on in Guardians of the Galaxy, and it's like night and day, mm-hmm. where y- you could tell that Gruenwald did his homework, and it shows... 
a lot of fun. Mike Manley renders Rachel like you would not believe because I mean she's essentially naked. It, you really? Know, yeah. They well they color her costume is red, but it's so form fitting that she might as well not be wearing a costume at all. If it weren't for the spikes on her arms and the fact and, and the fact yeah and the fact that she is red, she'd be you know running around naked. And I'll tell you, it, it's not unpleasant to look at. That's interesting that you said it about Manly, because, I mean, D- Davis draws a fine Rachel. Oh, Davis draws the best Rachel. <laughs> and Me- and Megan, Megan, too, yeah. <laughs> they, I, I think what gets me about Davis's Megan is the innocence that he puts in the facial right, features, yeah, and yeah, then yeah, the everything face. from the neck down is like, oh, good Lord. But, yeah. And she looks like a little schoolgirl. Like, oh, am I bad? <laughs> you betcha, baby, you bet. Yeah. But another book that was a hell of a lot of fun to read, this book is littered with panels. And you could tell it's 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 not a recent book. Aside from the first page, there's a splash, and maybe there's a double-page spread midway through the book, but it's not the complete pages. It's maybe a third... No, it's about a half page, but it goes, it, it spans... You know, it goes across two pages, but the bottom part is littered with panels, so it's it it moves at a nice clip. There's a lot of information. The dialogue is is a lot of fun. Okay. So again, another series that I would not mind having the entire run. Hmm. Huh. Two for two. Hey guys, this is Chris, uh, the big largest on the boards. I loved you guys' in-depth look at uh, Astonishing X-Men. such a great book, and you guys really did a great job of pointing that out, all the subtleties that I hadn't picked up on the first read-through. Um, right after I heard you guys do the podcast, I picked it up and read that whole run again, and it's just great stuff from beginning to end. Uh, like I said, I really love the podcast, and I'm looking forward to more reviews like that. Uh, specifically, one I'd love to see is uh, the Runaways Volume 1 hardcover. It's it's great stuff. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. So, uh, this is Chris signing off. Ah, my next one will go to uh, X-Force, number 76. So we go from, um, from really good to, uh, man... I'm going to go on a mini rant at, at the beginning. I'm going to preface this by saying that there was a reason when Jim Shooter was editor-in-chief, he said that every comic is somebody's first comic book, which is why you knew everything you needed to know about Wolverine in every issue of Uncanny X-Men. You knew everything you needed to know about Storm, about Cyclops, about Nightcrawler. You knew that a radioactive spider bit Peter Parker. You knew that a gamma bomb is what helped create the Incredible Hulk. I mean, it was nice to know something about the character. You didn't have to know why they were there. You didn't have to know what they were doing at that particular time. But to know who they might be, that helped. And they did. And And they did it in one panel. Sometimes they would even do it above the title of the comic where it said Stanley Presents. But now, and and what's nice now is you have the, the previously page at the beginning of the comic books, which... I like and don't like at the same time, and we won't get into that now, but you're right. Occasionally, in one panel, they told you everything you needed to know, and you were up and running. You were up to speed on the character. You may have to go back. You might have to go back issue hunting for the story, but to know 
who the person is in the comic that you just bought, that they told you. I was begging someone to tell me what was going on or who the characters were in this comic book. The cover says Domino versus Shatterstar. Okay, cool. You know, hey, two heroes are going to fight Marvel style. You know, someone's going to, there's going to be a big misunderstanding, and then at the end, they're going to go to the bar afterwards. Everybody's going to be happy. Aside from me knowing who Shatterstar and Domino are, Shatterstar looks a lot different than when he did in the early issues of X Force. Domino looks the same, except she's got shorter hair. But as far as X Force goes, the first page shows a, a, a team shot of Cannonball, of Warpath, of Shatterstar, of Sunspot, of Boom Boom. And I knew who these characters were based on past reading, but not once did it tell you who they were in this image. No one, there were no panels, there were no captions saying, you know, who this person is and what their powers are. It, it was just group shot, nice splash page, and now we're going to, the next page we're at a bowling alley. I, I don't know who's at fault for this. I, the, the writer is, is John Francis Moore. The illustrator is Mike S. Miller. Apparently the idea of the story is, is um, there's a shout out. They give a thanks to Adam Polina, who I believe is, was the regular series artist at the time. Tabitha, a.k.a. who I remember is Boom Boom and is Boom Boom again in Next Wave. Apparently her um, code name at this stage of her career is Meltdown. She's the only one who I actually know has a code name. I don't, I don't know if we're told that Sam Guthrie is Cannonball or Roberto da Costa is Sunspot. At the bowling alley is Danny Morningstar, also known as Mirage from the New Mutants, but we're not told her code name. We're told her last name because Guthrie calls her by it, naturally refers to her as Danny. There's a Teresa who I believe is Teresa Cassidy, also known as Siren. She's talking to someone whose name is James, who may be James Madrox. I don't know, because the characters all tend to look very similar. There's not much to go by as far with the exception of Sam Guthrie, who's tall, and the women, who all have distinct features, because Danny is a Native American, Tabitha has, has short blonde hair, um, and Teresa has long red hair. I mean, you could tell them apart. Except for the coloring, you know, telling James apart from Robert or Roberto isn't easy to do. So I'm, I'm guessing that that might be Madrox. I don't know for certain. Also in the book is Richter and Arcade. The Arcade connection is the reason why Domino and Shatterstar are fighting. So anyway, while Sam Guthrie is hanging out at the bowling alley with X-Force, He's basically taking time off away from the X-Men because I'm guessing he's an X-Man during this time. But again, you know, God forbid they actually, with the exception of one panel where they show three other mutants that are at Xavier's, we don't know that, you know, Guthrie's an X-Man. We have to kind of guess that from the dialogue going on. We're, we're, we're seeing them hanging out at the bowling alley. They leave the bowling alley. When they leave... We're brought to a, a barge on the ocean where Domino has just got done fighting Snakeskin and her next opponent is going to be Shatterstar. And Arcade is telling them that um, don't pull any punches or else uh, your friend Richter will bite the big one. And so they fight without spoiling anything. The good guy wins or the good girl wins. And they rescue Richter. And that's pretty much it for their story. And then 
we go back to X-Force and apparently Tabitha and Roberto have been having a fling and Tabitha I guess before Sam Guthrie left to join the X-Men he and Tabitha were an item and I guess this this thing between Tabitha and Roberto was um, was something that wasn't planned and they were keeping it from Sam and now Sam walks in on them and he sees that they're together and then he leaves in a huff and then the issue pretty much ends I mean at that point there's an appearance by Deadpool so if you're a Deadpool completist you know then knock yourself out I guess I just I wanted more and it wasn't coming this was the Bob Harris era of him being editor-in-chief so maybe that had something to do with you know them not really giving you anything to go on I was just I was scratching my head more than I wasn't I mean yeah it might have maybe it was a fill-in issue maybe it was you know seeing them at the bowling alley could have been told during any type of story or or in between any other you know from one plot to the next or from one from one story arc to the next and here's a fill-in issue but I just I'm grasping it at just words to try to just explain that not not so much my displeasure but just frustration yeah really I mean I just it wasn't painful to read I was just you know, I read it and it was fine. If if I had no knowledge of these characters... I mean, I was reading it and looking at it from the point of view of... If this is my first Marvel comic, would I buy the next issue? No. Because you didn't give me anything in this issue that made it worthwhile for me to continue. Why should I care about these characters? All I know is that now Sam is the jilted lover. He flew away. And if I was able to piece things together with some great detective work... And I know that Sam's in the X-Men, I can go buy one of the X-Men comic books if I want to read more Cannonball. All I know about Roberto and, and, and Tabitha now is that they go on and they cheat behind their best friend's back and I don't know what the hell happened to Siren or Mirage or anything like that. I mean, it was just... And the writer doesn't give you too much reasons to care either. Miller has this um, forcing your perspective might be just the wrong term, but he does a lot of like 3D type deals where if, if, if someone sticks their hand out to shake your hand, the focus is on the, their fingers and they're all the way. They're like three miles back, but there's their hand right in the front of the right in the center front of, of the panel. There, there are a couple of scenes like that where someone's hands or fingers are in the forefront of the panel and then you know, so many tricks like that and, and the lines are clean. <laughs> One other thing which made it I knew, but it, it was still, there was a, a word balloon mishap where um, Arcade and the person that he was putting the show on for, their balloons were swapped. And the only reason I would have known that is the way that Arcade introduced the person. And this person is is French and talks in a French dialect. So I knew Arcade wasn't saying those sentences. But, you know, so I mean, just even the editing was a little lacking in the issue. And and again, but that might be par for the course because if the editing was, was on, was a. was on the ball, then we probably would have gotten a, an issue with a little bit more, um, a little bit more meat. I guess you get what you pay for. I mean, I spend a quarter and I get this. You spend a quarter and you get Guardians of the Galaxy number one. And yep. I, you know, it's luck of the draw. And hey, it's an X Force book. It's in the X universe. There are mutants in it. You know, how can you go wrong? They mention Wolverine. There's no appearance by him, but you know, I figured I never read anything so late in the run of this title. Let me just see how much things have changed and. Uh, things have changed. 
something to be said about Shooter's approach to producing comic books. I'm all for it. There's nothing wrong with giving the the reader a little bit more information than they need. I never read a Shooter comic book and felt like it was I was being talked down to or they dumbed the book down so that I could follow along. Because even it, it was just one panel. Okay, Wolverine, laced that skeleton laced with adamantium, bestias at what he does, has a healing factor. Can you know even if Claremont said and the reason Wolverine is out in the cold is because, you know, he heals quickly and you know, or he's not in the water because he'll sink like a stone. I mean, you know, th- there are ways that, that Claremont could tweak it so that it fit in with, 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 with the story he was telling and, and you know, it's not like he just put a big stamp and said, Wolverine bestie is at what he does has a keen sense of smell and can heal quickly. I mean, it wasn't out of place. It flowed nicely, and it worked. It still does. I wish they'd bring it back. I think the decision to drop captions from comic books and let the dialogue and the art convey the story was not a good one. I, I miss little caption boxes. I do, too. I'm I, not, miss, I, I don't, And I, I, I miss thought balloons. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying litter the page with them like in the Heroes Reborn Fantastic Four run where you would just have an endless stream of dialogue balloons and captions and thought about No, every once in a while they do help to push the story along. Yes. Oddly enough, my next book is from the Bob Harris era. I'm sorry. I, oh, and it is a stinker. Oh, really? Yes, it is horrible. Oh, man. At 25 cents, it costs too much. Okay. It's X-51, number five. And oh, let, no, someone's not going to be happy. Ah, uh, well, he can live with it. And it's from the M-Tech series. Before I get into the guts of the book, I don't think I have the vocabulary to convey just how bad this cover is. Oh, that good. It was done by George Perez. And it is, without a doubt, the most horrible George image I have ever seen. It's wow. Yes. It's the Vision and X-51 duking it out. Okay, sounds good right there. But they're spiraling down this tunnel of what looks to be like data or circuitry. And Perez renders every little bit of white space in this image with these little noodlings of data. And when you combine that with the cover treatment that they have for the M-Tech books with the circuitry that vertically traveled down the length of the, the book near the spine and okay. the, the it also traveled across the masthead, there's loops of data encircling both of the characters in the vision's body there's little tiny circuitry bits in the dark areas where where the shadows would be because i guess he's in he's incorporeal and he's in the machine with with x51 okay. you cannot tell what the hell is going on if you saw this on a rack at 10 paces away it would just look like a massive gibberish to you and to make matters worse, the cover was flopped. George Perez's signature is backwards. And they no didn't kidding. Yeah, and they didn't even go in and, and, and try and fix it. I gotta say, I'm not the biggest George Perez fan. I think he's a capable and adequate draftsman, 
but I find his stuff to be very stiff, pretty much uninspired, and that habit he has with the excessive noodling, it, I, I don't understand what that does to the story. It, it, it absolutely does nothing other than to say, look, I can put millions and millions of little pieces of detail in this drawing. Like in the Perez Busick Avengers run, George went out of his way to draw every curl in the Scarlet Witch's hair. And what did, basically, what did that do other than to show you that, wow, he took a lot of time drawing that hair? <laughs> you know, whereas someone like a, a say, a Ramita would do it in maybe two or three strokes with, with, with an economy of line that was enough to tell the reader that this is hair. You don't have to go in and draw every frickin' line in the, uh, of, of, of hair in this woman's head. And that's the problem with this cover. There's so much going on that you can't... It's indecipherable. It's See, a, I, well, no, I'm just... I'm, I'm flabbergasted that the detail that, that, that Perez would do would, would de- detract from, from the cover so much. I mean, I'm, I, I, am, I am a fan of the man, so I mean, I... I feel bad when when I hear something that he's done has gone so horribly wrong. When when your background is as detailed as the objects in your foreground, it flattens everything out. If if the background has more detail than the characters in the foreground, because vision, I I, I understand what you're saying about he's incorporeal, so you know you can see the circuitry through him or in him, but the vision. When I remember the the vision in, in in any of the issues in the Avengers, there was so little detail to him. He was green and yellow and had a red face. There was not a lot of detail put into the vision. Right. And I would think he would stand out on this cover if he was done the way that he used to be done. If there's a lot of detail in the back in the background and there's a little bit of detail on him, I would think that he would stand out. But the way you're describing it, no, it, it wow. I'm going to post links on the forum to the covers of all the books we cover this episode, okay. just so people can see that I'm not nuts, especially, especially where this X-51 cover is concerned. It is, and, and I don't think I can express how bad it is. It, it, it's, it's horrible. Not to slight George, because he is decent at what he does, but this cover, you'd never know that this was the same man that drew say, JLA Avengers, or those wonderful Teen Titans issues. Right. Ouch. And, and before I, my inbox is bombarded with hate mail, let's get on to the inside of this, okay. this sucker. In short, X-51 is going on a rampage. He has these moments of clarity where he'll recognize people he should know, and then he just goes on this tirade in search of mutants. And this issue is basically a 22-page fight between X-51 and the Vision. There's nothing else going on in this issue. It seems that X-51 has developed a strange interest in Firestar and Justice from the Avengers. That's who... Justice, look at his outfit. Tell me that doesn't look similar to Vance Astro's outfit. Yeah, now that you mention it. That's who I'm trying to think is who Vance Astro is in present time Marvel continuity. I believe Justice and Vance Astro are the same person. And hopefully somebody can back me up on that or, or, or give me a valid reason why that's not so. Is that synchronicity or what? Thank you. So, uh, so you've had you've had 
All your issues have tied in some way, shape, or form. Mine have just been all over the place. I did not plan that, by the way. I, I'm sure. So X-51 and Vision are going at it, beating the hell out of each other. Firestar and Justice make a beeline back to the Avengers Mansion at the orders of the Vision, and X-51 follows them, taps into the Avengers Mansion computers, which gives the Vision access to X-51's mind. And he finds out that poor old Aaron Stack is being corrupted by the Master Mold, hence his interest in mutants. And at the end of the issue, X-51 is teleported away and becomes a satellite. And that's it. Okay. Yeah, that's basically it. The issue was written by Mike Higgins and Carl Bowlers, who thankfully have only worked on the X-51 title. And <laughs> I, I'd hate like hell to see what else they can do. It, w- it was penciled by Joe Bennett, pres- see, now, presumably well, this, this was, very early in his career. Thank you. Okay. Because I thought Bennett did a great job on Captain America and the Falcon. And... He can draw a hell of a Scarlet Witch, and I think he's doing a competent job on 52. I somewhat agree. Um, okay. And the, And the thing was inked by Bob Wycheck. You can't go wrong with Wycheck. No. Man, the man's inked some of the greats. You would think that he, then, then maybe he improved. Look at it this way, then. He probably improved on what you might have seen right? if he wasn't on the book. Truth be told, the inks are the best part of this book. I would, I believe it. Very nicely done. And I, I can't help but shed a tear at the credits page where it says, inspired by the work of Jack Kirby. Do you, do you hear that sound? That's Jack Kirby spinning like a friggin' lathe in his grave. They have X-51 decked out like a cross between Machine Man and Death's Head. There's all this noodly crap and garbage coming out of his head and his chest and he looks like a, a, a perverted transformer. It's horrible. Oh, and But that was the style then. I mean, this was done in 99. So I guess you have to expect that. It, it, was, it was part of that, that whole... It was that recent too, huh? Yeah, that whole Spiky Bits era and it's just... The title of the story is Circuits Maximus. <laughs> you know, sh- shoot me in the head. But I will say, whether it was Wycheck fixing Bennett's shortcomings, but Firestar does look very attractive, and they go out of their way to... You can draw great women. Yes. You really can. They go out of their way to accentuate her posterior whenever they can. As a distraction from what little there is going on, it's a good one. Uh, There's a brief interlude where Sebastian Shaw appears and wonders if his secret has gotten out because I guess he was being pursued by X-51 and in walks Tessa. I would think his secret was that he appeared in this comic. Yeah, in walks Tessa, and she's got the bustier and the the little G-string on with the big boots. And, you know, it's nice to look at, I guess. But the, the thing that struck me as being the worst part about the interior of this issue is the dialogue. As Vision is pummeling the hell out of X-51, there's this internal monologue going on, and he recounts everything that you see in the panels. 
I reduce the molecules within my arm to their minimal density, and I plunge it through the former ally supercharged robotic form, all of which you see. You know, and, and and they're fighting, and and Justice goes, "Oh my God, it's the Vision and and X fifty one trading blows," <laughs> and and Firestar w- says, "And the force of the impact is sending Cleopatra's needle toppling," and that's exactly what you see. You know, it, it's it's all unnecessary wow. dialogue. It's it's horrible. It, it reminds me of a um. Occasionally on the weekends, Renee and I watch HGTV, and there's one show where they redo someone's landscape and you see the contractors come in you see the construction crew at work you see the landscapers doing what they have to do and as 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 they're putting down cement or they're leveling rocks or they're bringing in sand or they're cutting down trees the host of the show is telling you that they are bringing in cement leveling rocks bringing in sand cutting down trees. You see this happening, but yet he's telling you this. It's like, I don't know if it's a show designed for the blind or the deaf. And maybe Mike Higgins and Carl Bowlers are on the writing team. It's nice to know they landed on their feet. Yeah, just atrocious. It, it, there, There is nothing I enjoyed about this issue at all. Damn, that's a shame. There, there were some momentary distractions with the females going on, but not even worth a quarter. I, I'm a lesser human being for having read this. <laughs> Damn, I don't know if the X-Force comic I read was that bad. So if you ever encounter an issue of X-51 in a bargain bin, run as <laughs> far away as fast as you can because it's it's not worth your time. Damn. Yeah. Sorry, X-51. I know he's going to be pissed, but you'll have this. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what the hell kind of intro we're going to have this week. What, what was he thinking? Well, maybe it was in it for the money. <laughs> or the blow. I don't know. It's just... <laughs> the blow. Vince and David, gentlemen, this is Dan C. Papercut. Just wanted to give you a call to let you know that you guys are, you know, hands down, without a doubt, my uh, second favorite podcast starring... A Vince and a David. You know, I, I actually haven't found the first podcast, you know, first favorite starring a Vince and David, but I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Somebody named Vince and David has to have a better podcast than you, but I, you know, I'll keep searching for it. But I just want to let you guys know that uh, your place in history is secure. Keep up the good work and uh, keep shooting for the stars, boys. Shoot for the stars. I'll try to um, make things a little bit more sunnier by bringing you the hero of Hell's Kitchen. Uh, Daredevil, The Man Without Fear, number 41 under the Marvel Knights imprint, or volume 1, number 421. Low Life, part 1 of 5. It's a new chapter of a, uh, of a new ongoing story. It's my first Bendis-written Daredevil comic that I bought, and it's my only... Well, no, because I have the Illuminati one-shot. It's one of the only Alex Maleev illustrated comic books I have in my collection. And it's interesting how Maleev can have really, really nice, even great panels on a page, uh, on the same page as some really mediocre 
panels. And he's he's a good artist. I mean, I, I like the Illuminati, and it's a little different than what I'm used to. It's it's not really a style that I'm, I'm a fan of. But being a Daredevil comic book, there's a lot of realistic images. You know, the people seem real. It is. It, it, it's a nice-looking comic that there's... There's a um, there's a couple of pages with the owl. This is one of those comics where they have the the previously in pages. Before this story takes place, we find out that Wilson Fisk, also known as the Kingpin, had an assassination attempt put on his life. He, he survived. His wife Vanessa shipped him out of the country. She followed shortly after. Basically, the owl was put in charge. He he was the highest bidder. And, and took over Hell's Kitchen or basically whatever whatever the Kingpin oversaw now belongs to the Owl. And there's a couple of scenes where the Owl looks a little... Um, looks It's a little rough. It Actually, some of it reminds me of um, Kent Williams from the Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown series that he did with John J. Muth. There's, but overall, it's, it's, it, it's a nice-looking book. Actually, I think, I think Bendis is in the comic book because there's an appearance of um, a gentleman by the name of Wilbur Day who used to be known as the Stilt Man. And there's an image, the middle panel on, on one of the pages, it looks just like Bendis. The story itself, we start off with two women walking down the street, one's blind, and she almost gets hit by a truck, and Daredevil saves her. I guess we're just led to believe now that she's pretty much going to be smitten with Daredevil. After he saves her, we're back at the Nelson and Murdoch Law Office, and um, this takes place after we find out that the newspapers had decided to run with the story that Daredevil is blind attorney Matt Murdoch. So there's that underlying plot going on in the book. To kind of squash the rumor, we're going to... Um, Daredevil's going to kind of make sure that, you know, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm Daredevil... How can I be a blind attorney? I mean, the guy's blind, for God's sakes. And um, Matt Murdock finds out from Wilbur Day that, that the owl is now in charge. So Daredevil decides to um, piss him off. And he does that by the money that was going to be coming in that evening from the night's rackets. Daredevil takes and um, he burns it. Naturally, the owl goes off and kills one of his thugs and the last page is the blind woman that Daredevil saved at the beginning of the issue thinking about Daredevil and then we're told to be continued so what I got out of the story so far is that this is the first part of a storyline that will bring Daredevil face to face with the owl I am kind of interested in seeing the rest of it I, I would like to know where the story went the Bendis run is something that that's on my list it's not a i have to get this now it's not on that list but it's on it's on my eventually i'll get around to reading the bendis issues of daredevil list now that i've read an issue from that run you know just smack dab in the middle of it i can't say that oh i know exactly what everybody was talking about now now i can see why everybody loved it but it's not bad it's 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 better than i expected so you know i mean for for, for a quarter i don't think it was too bad i didn't I didn't get as much out of it as I, I got out of the Ghost Rider. I got a hell of a lot out of it more than I got out of the X Force. Overall, it wasn't it wasn't too bad. I'm, I'm Malieve's art was uh, was nicer to look at than I than I was expecting it, and and Bendis wrote a a really good story. And I I, I don't dismiss the man's talent. It it he I like his writing. I just never read a Daredevil that he's written, and 
and it was. It was. It, it was better than I thought it was going to be. I like it. Yeah, I've warmed up a lot to Bendis over the over the years. The less said about House of M, the better. But his Ultimate Spider-Man is incredible. If you're not reading Ultimate Spider-Man, you really should. It, it's an an awesome take on the character. He he obviously loves Peter Parker and Mary Jane, and proved everyone wrong when they said. Uh, a revamped spider title would never work. It's actually better than what Straczynski has done in Amazing. No kidding. Yeah, it's so enjoyable. The dialogue is very well written and totally realistic and believable. And it, it's a it's a great book. And my last pick pretty much proves, as Peter David did with his part of the other storyline, that he could take whatever's given to him and make it not only more entertaining than it should be, but make it memorable as well. This annual was part of the Life Form series that ran through Punisher Annual number 3, Daredevil Annual number 6, the third part in this Incredible Hulk Annual number 16, and it finished up in Silver Surfer Annual number 3. Now, the main storyline is written naturally by Peter David and drawn by Angel Medina, a personal favorite. Oh, yeah. yeah. And inked by Larry Maltstedt. Peter David uses this really cool narrative technique where the book opens up and there's this man sitting in a chair, black background, and he's talking, we think, directly to the reader. You see nothing else but the character and a black background. Talking heads, basically. He tells you his name is George Prufrock, much like the poem. Another testament to David's strength as a writer. He ties this character in with T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And this virus invades this guy's system. And he turns into this huge, dripping, postulant, Wrightson-esque type being where he he has to keep consuming. The virus is, is, is pushing him to keep eating and, and devouring and growing and he's at odds with it. The, the, his his human part is coming to the forefront, and he's, he tells his victims, run, get away from me, I'm going to eat you, you know? And, and then the virus takes over, and it's much like the Bruce Banner-Hulk dichotomy, where, you know, Banner's the passive one, Hulk's the aggressive, and same thing with the virus. And as the story goes on, we see more instances of the character talking to the reader, but with each successive appearance... His skin falls off more, and he starts to drip, and he rips his clothes off. And he's, at one point in the story, he walks off panel, and you see this chair. And he says, excuse me for a moment. He walks off panel, and you hear screams, and there's, you know, uh, like Dave Sim-type sound effects where you hear bones cracking, and there's crunching, and he walks back, and he's chewing on like a, a femur. Oh, my God. Yeah, and, and they... Uh, and he continues to gnaw on the bones. And as the story goes on, he loses every shred of his human appearance. And he's just this multi-armed, disgusting creature. And it's a real neat technique. And again, part of the attraction to T.S. Eliot's poem is you don't know who the narrator's talking to. And that's applies to this story as well. This guy's talking to someone. You think it's you, but it's not. And at the end, you finally find out who it is. But there's, it, there's a vagueness as to, to who he's, he's having a conversation with. And that's, again, Peter David 
elevates even the most mundane story he's he's given to because obviously I don't think this whole crossover was a Peter David creation. He he basically took what he had and he ran with it and he did a really really good job. Medina's Hulk looks something like a cross between Todd McFarlane's and Dale Keown's. It's really? yeah, it's amazing what uh, Medina has done with the Hulk. He's with the big furrowed brow and very class, very classy. And and again, it's it's not your run of the mill crossover. Uh, during the story that alien mercy shows up she can teleport and she keeps killing people and we find out she thinks she's helping them she she encounters this this wino and he's like oh i'd be better off dead so she pushes him in front of a truck <laughs> well you know yeah if, and, uh... you know she says i hope you're feeling better now and she doesn't understand that sometimes people don't exactly mean what they say and they're not themselves all the time so she physically separates Bruce Banner and the Hulk into wow. in, into okay. two into two entities and naturally the Hulk comes into contact with the life form and tries you know to knock the crap out of it but the life form goes after Bruce Banner and the Hulk has to save him otherwise he doesn't know whether he'd be the Hulk permanently or whether killing Banner would kill oh, him. Okay, so right, he's right. he's he's forced to save Banner, and that doesn't sit well with the Hulk. He he tells the life form, you know, if anybody's going to kill this guy, it's going to be me. On the surface, it's a, a neat little superhero romp, but there's a lot going on in this, and Peter David is very very adept at producing stories like that. Wow. The rest of the issues, crap. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to embellish it. Don't, any, don't any, sugarcoat it. No, there's a Hulk pinup by Tex, and well, that's got to be all right. Then. It can't be crap. No, 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 no. It's <gasps> you would never know it was drawn by Tex. No, get out. No, Mm-mm. it it looks like a gray wrestler, an ugly gray wrestler, <laughs> not in keeping with Tex's style. Oh, I'm heartbroken. Yeah, there's. A She-Hulk story written by Billy Mumy from Lost in Space. Hey, all right. Yeah, and drawn by Chris Wozniak, good girl artist. And again, nothing remarkable. In fact, it's not very good, Chris Wozniak. She-Hulk gets bamboozled into diving for this sunken treasure that contains the elixir of eternal life or something or other. It's, it's ridiculous. And something that really pained me to see there's a double page spread of the hulk's top 10 best brawls and it's drawn by herb trempy and again you'd never ever know that this was drawn by trempy it's it's almost amateurish really yeah and there's no inker it's all herb oh wow and from someone who ascended to great heights with the character you'd never know it by looking at this not good. Aww. It's it saddens me, you know, because nobody wants to see the effects of time on an on an artist. Sure. And and this is exactly what this is. And to make matters worse, the naturally the thing is one of the top ten. Actually, he's the number one. And Trimpy drew the spiky headed mutated thing from this period in the Fantastic Force history. It's like, you know, I don't want to see that. Don't remind me how bad that was. <laughs> and it rounds out with an Alan Grant story 
featuring Doc Sampson and his psychosis. He dreams the Hulk is kicking the crap out of him, and at the end it turns out that he's psychoanalyzing himself. Really creepy story. Does not give me too much confidence in Samson's mental condition. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And he's a psychiatrist, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh. But even though it's a flawed issue due to the, the back matter, the main story, pick this sucker up. It is very, very well drawn, exceptionally well written. It's a keeper. Oh, that's good. Yeah, which, I mean, that pretty much stands for everything Peter David has done. I don't think the guy's ever written a half-assed story. There's always a, there's yeah, always yeah, a certain yeah. level of quality to Peter right. David's work, and that proves it, in my mind, anyway. Hey, Vince B. Hey, David. This is Jefferson. Just wanted to uh, answer the question, what was your greatest discovery? at a flea market or a bargain bin. Mine happened in the late 70s. I was living, um, my family was living on an Air Force base at the time, and every week we would go to the base commissary for groceries. But before that, we'd always stop by the thrift store. And usually it was pretty boring, but that day I found a stack of comic books for like, I think it was like 30 cents. I begged my mom to let me buy it. As I rifled through the pile there, there happened to be an issue with the Fantastic Four. I was getting issues of the Fantastic Four at the time, you know, but I was like, had like a 50 cent a week allowance, so I could only get a couple of comic books a week. I was, you know, getting like mixed issues of Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, Marvel 2-in-1, and Marvel Team-Up. But this, like, was an old issue of Fantastic Four. It was, like, Fantastic Four issue 80. I'd never seen a comic book this old before. And on the cover, there was this giant gray Indian totem. And there was the Fantastic Four barreling down on it in jeeps. I mean, it was, like, it was just inviting you to open the comic book up, really. You'd open it up and you found out that Indian totem was Tamazuma, the death that walks. And it had, you know, just uh, great stuff inside. And, you know, the Fantastic Four, I mean, out in the desert, a giant Kirby monstrosity, you know, sort of like his, uh, you know, Atlas days. You know, and there's like, you know, onslaughts of Indians and in jeeps, wearing headdresses, firing guns, attacking Tamazuma. And then there's like Wyatt Wingfoot firing a compressed Mr. Fantastic out of a bazooka. It was crazy intense. So I thumbed to the front of the book to see who, like, did this, and I saw the name Jack Kirby, and it was like, wow, Jack Kirby, who is this guy? I gotta remember who this guy is. So 
So at the time, you know, Captain America and and, uh, Black Panther were being published, so I'd buy issues of that. And then I'd also get issues like Machine Man. Love that. Those protracting hands. So cool. And now I'm like 39 years old. And during my lifetime, I've sold off parts of my comic book collection as the years have gone by. But this comic book has always stayed in that, has always stayed with me because it was my first exposure to Jack Kirby. I mean, <laughs> really. I mean, he, I, this comic book really kind of changed the way I uh, looked at comic books. I mean, it was so wild. Uh, so that is my story. That is the greatest find I've ever had. Well, when I found out about girls. Not girls in flea markets. Well, I'd find cool girls in shopped in flea markets. But that's another story. So, you boys, just keep up the powerful good work. Love the show. Love what you're doing. And I will talk to you later. Good day, gentlemen. And, well, since you weren't really too thrilled with, with, with that with that Hulk annual I'll um I'll try to find something good in uh in my last comic for the uh for this. I'll I'll round it out with, with Avengers number seventy eight or volume three seventy eight, also known as volume one four ninety three. I mentioned before that this is my only I wanna say it it is my only Chuck Austin Marvel written comic book. It's got an interesting cover by Scott Collins. It's got Captain America, Iron Man, and Scarlet Witch on it. And at arm's length, it is a nice-looking cover. As you start to study it, you try to figure out maybe what Scarlet Witch is thinking. Iron Man even looks a little wonky. And and Captain America, I think, has his eyes closed as he's running into battle. So, (laughs) like I said, it, it, it looks good, but... Don't focus on anything because it's it's going to detract from it looking good. But it's it's still Collins, so I mean it's still the dynamics are still there. There's just some things that are just a trifle off. Collins doesn't do the interior. It's written by Chuck Austin, like I said. Oliver Copiel is the penciler. Andy Lanning did the inks, and um, Chris Sotomayor did the colors. It's part two of, I believe, a five-part series called The Lionheart of Avalon. Basically, we pick up in England. Um, actually, our, our first page, we're, we're, we're told what happened in the last issue. Basically, it looks like Captain America, the Wasp, She-Hulk, and Hawkeye, they went to England to track down the Wrecking Crew. And the Wasp isn't so much the Wasp anymore. Apparently, she can also grow. She can go from really small or from really tall. So that's that's new. That was a little surprising to me. I'm not sure when that happened. So that was one thing that was a little different. But we have the um, the previously in. We pick up with, with She-Hulk, who's helping out the fire department rescue someone. And when we cut to some action, we see Thunderball about to wallop 
Captain America who's down and out, and so is the Wasp. And there's a mother and her two children that's lying in the rubble next to Captain America. And right when Thunderball's about to squash good old Cap, the mother grabs the shield and blocks the the wrecking ball. She surprises Thunderball. He's asking her why, and she stands her ground. He tells her that, uh, you know, he will go through her if he has to. Right before he lays into her, we cut to uh, we cut to the wrecker and pile driver. They're standing their ground with Hawkeye, and Hawkeye makes quick work of them. She-Hulk finally comes in to save the day, and um, it is right as Thunderball is about to um, put the final blow to the mother. So She-Hulk takes care of Thunderball, and um, the mother seems to be in a bad way. The Avengers go to take her to one of Stark's mansions in England so that the medical staff can take care of her, take care of Captain America, who suffered uh, some injuries, which Wanda, the Scarlet Witch, has, um, has decided to heal. And we close out with we're being told that the, that the injuries were too severe to the mother and, uh, and she has died. So I do not know where it's going to go in part three. I don't know. Um, I'm sure we're going to find out some more information about the mother. The art was good. It was consistent. There were, there were, uh, there were some really nice, nice larger than life scenes going on when, um, when, when Copiel decided to have some larger panels that really helped with the story. It's been a while since I seen the Wrecking Crew in action, and and so that that was nice. It was it, it wasn't a bad story. I don't think um I, I don't think Austin was Satan behind a keyboard. I think he wrote everybody um pretty well. I don't you know She Hulk sounded like She Hulk to me. The Cap didn't talk much except for after Wanda healed him and uh, he wanted to check on the mom. The Wasp was fine. I mean, everybody was okay. I mean, not, nothing out of the ordinary. It's, I, I don't think, you know, Austin was um, doing anything detrimental to these characters or, or the Marvel Universe with this particular issue. It, 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 it's one part of a, of a larger story, and, and it, it's early in to the story. So I, I am I'm, I'm interested in, uh, in seeing where, where, where it was going from here. So I, I, I don't think you can go wrong for a quarter with this book. No, not Copiel. He's fantastic. No, no, yeah, yeah, and 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 the colors were nice too. Sotomayor wasn't uh, wasn't too shabby a couple of years back, and he's not too shabby today. No, he's not. Yep, I think we gave a couple of a uh, couple of good hits, and uh, and and a couple of uh, don't even think about it. And that's the chance you take when you dive headfirst into the bargain bins. Yeah, you never know what you're gonna get. It's like a big old box of chocolates, <laughs> <laughs> and and like you said, you'll post the uh, the covers, so yes. so this way folks will know what it is that when they're diving in the bargain bins, they'll know what they could be looking for. And, uh, and in the and, case of X fifty one, you'll know which one to avoid. Right. Yes. Sorry, George. Not your best effort. And it was only the cover. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but it's symptomatic of a larger. Malady, let me tell I'm you. I'm sure it is. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> I'll there sh- you go. I'll shut up now. <laughs> oh, poor George. I'm picking on him for. Well, that's another one in the can. We will be back next week for more madcap hijinks in the Mighty Marvel Manor. So for Vince B. And for David. We'll see ya. Bye bye. So